0: Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. We have just recently come up with the Captain Strategy Series, which we're really excited about. What that means is, instead of working with 40 Strategies individually, you can now work with us in group-oriented sessions Helps you accomplish what you want with creating your strategic plan, but you could do it at the fraction of the cost. So, if you want to learn more about that, once again, go to 40strategy.com. We'd like to thank, do a shout out from time to time. We're going to thank Jim Gitney, author of Strategy Realized, for our introduction to our guest, who is Paul Falcone. Paul is the principal of his own company, Workplace Leadership Consulting, specializing in management and leadership training, executive coaching international keynote speaking, and facilitating corporate office retreats. He's the former CHRO of Nickelodeon, has held senior-level HR positions with Paramount Pictures, Time Warner, and The City of Hope. He's also the author of 15 and counting, I should say, best-selling HarperCollins Leadership and American Management Association books, and a long-term columnist for the Society for Human Resource Management. Paul, welcome to the Medical Success Podcast.
1: Thanks, Carl. Nice intro, by the way. I liked it. I know where you found all that information out, but it's very interesting.
0: Just pulled it all together in Chat GBT, Paul. We just, there just you take go. <laughs> <laughs> Just Just for the audience, we were just joking about, you know, is Chat gonna make us expendable in the future and what we decided, we're gonna embrace it, we're using it, we're learning from it. And uh, now, Paul, you do have an absolute wonderful background, and we're so glad you're on the show. So, Paul, tell us in a little bit more depth. How, tell some about the kind of how you got into your career and and how you what led you to kind of your learning and knowledge of what you have today?
1: It, it's a great question, Carl. I, I backdoored it into my career. I did not grow up knowing what human resources was. And it turned out that I had a really great career path in it. So knock on wood, I was kind of fortunate. I ended up studying German in school. I'm Italian. It's a long story, but I got my bachelor's and master's degrees in German. And I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out of UCLA went to a recruiting firm and said, could you help me find a job? And they said, sure, why don't you come work here for us? Well, didn't know what they did, but I was there for six years. I became their director of sales training. And then eventually I went in house with a client company. So from there, it was a matter of small company to medium sized company to large company, because I really wanted to work in the big, you know, name brand fortune 500 types of organizations. And in Los Angeles, entertainment is, is pretty much the 800 pound gorilla in the room. So I was fortunate to build my career that way. The writing happened in parallel. For, I've been writing now for 20 years, to your point. Uh, book number 16 comes out in the fall. And I've just been fortunate to, to write for the, the AMA, the American Management Association, and HarperCollins, and great publishers. So knock on wood, it's gone well. I'm I'm happy man. So well,
0: I'm kind of curious to start out with is you, you've worked with some smaller companies, and then you've worked with some of the largest in the world. How did HR, if you may, transition from those two different organizations, right? You know, what did you learn with the smaller company, which was different from the really large
1: company? They both have value. They both have merit. I mean, in a small company, you're a chief cook and bottle washer, right? Everyone's a generalist. Everyone touches everything. When you go into these bigger companies, it's like, you know, they slap your hand. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Go back into your box, And that's okay, because you can build deep dive specialty experience in the areas where you have the most interest. So as it turns out, as I look back on my career, for example, as an HR guy, HR is pretty broad. And I was never much into benefits, workers' compensation. Those, Those were not my things, but hiring, performance management, performance appraisal, leadership communication, leadership development, that the talent piece is what I loved. And so as I moved into the larger companies, that's what I can really hone, my, you know, hone in on, build my skills in those areas. And it was reflected in my writing because most of my books reflect the employee life cycle from how do you hire them to motivate them, develop them, hold them accountable, terminate them, whatever you need to do to that human being in that life cycle is what I've written about over the years. So,
0: so I'm, I'm curious how you came about. You have this full-time job with some really large companies and you're writing along the way. How did you balance that? You know, How did you fit time in to do a full-time job and
1: write on top of that? Yeah, people ask that question. To me, the writing was a hobby. Literally, when people say, what's your hobby? I'd say, I know this is gonna sound weird, but I like to write about the stuff that I do during the day. Now, I had to be careful, because you, know, you have to change the names to protect the innocent or protect the guilty, however you wanna look at it, um, and be in that situation where no one can come back and say, oh, you wrote about me in that book, right? So the larger companies where I've worked would say, Paul, you have to use disclosures saying that these are the author's opinions only and don't reflect the company, et cetera, et cetera. But they've all been very supportive. So knock on wood, I worked for great companies. I had really supportive bosses. And you know what I was doing, interestingly enough, was there was a cycle to it, Carl. It's like, you would see the leadership issues. You would see what your managers were, were challenged by. I knew how I can help them as the HR guys, kind of intuitive, but a lot of this stuff, it's not rocket science, but if you've never done it, it's, it's odd. In my world, I do it all the time. So you can help the clients through it and that would become an article. And then I'd write another article and then another article, but before you know it, I had so many articles, I had enough content for a book. And then we can kind of skew it. Are we writing about workplace ethics? Are you writing about effective hiring? Are you writing about employer relations and, and, and how to develop and grow people? So it can take all these different paths. And that's why you know the titles are different titles, but they're all in the same space. Because to me, that's really the critical piece of it all. It's knowing how to grow talent and build your own teams. As the, as the decades go by for the rest of this century, talent scarcity is going to be the main driver of, of it all. It's one of the top probably three factors going through the, the remainder of the 21st century. We're going to have to learn how to grow our own. And it's like, that's a skill that I think I could teach. And in business school, you know, even when they go to the top 10 schools, Carl, they're not learning leadership in the trenches. If they take an HR class, it's on organizational behavior, organizational design, but no one teaches how to be a great leader. And it's that focus on how that I think always made my book stand out.
0: That I think it's such a fascinating thing is uh, I had the same experience from an education standpoint, University of Washington was one of the top accounting programs in the United States. I took one audit class, I think it was. And next thing you know, I have a career in auditing, you know, at beginning of, at one of the, you know, at that, <laughs> right. then big right, six right. accounting right. firms. Um, and it's, and you have this, whoa, and, and went to a great college, great university, great studies, great professors. But I learned more in the first six months of on-the-job training than I did in four years at the University of Washington, right? You know, especially when you throw in hundreds of hours of overtime on top of that, you know, you just, there's nothing like time. You know, we get, we feel it's busy when we have quote unquote 15 hours or 18 hours a week. Of course, that's not including study, but you cannot compare to when you're getting critiqued by three, four, five different people about how crappy your work is. (laughs) <laughs> and then you you, you you learn all of a sudden, right? You know, through that editing mode, you know, that you can do better. So let's talk about that in terms of leadership, right? And the how and, and people not being aware. And they might be, once again, top of their class, went to one of the top business schools in the United States, got their MBA, one of the top business places, and they come out to a company and let's say they're 27 years old. And yeah, they've worked two years somewhere, right? But everything else was education. What's the first thing you have to help out with this uber smart person, but they don't know how to manage or lead?
1: Yeah, and and, and this is where things miss awareness. There's always a sense of you have to divine this. You got to figure it out on your own, and be sure you don't make a mistake, because if you make a mistake, you're going to be on the sharp end of the investigation spear, and then at that point, you know there could be lawsuits and all this drama kicks in, and it's like, wait a second, how am I supposed to like? just divine this stuff out of the thin air and companies don't do a good job at it. And so I think the idea is when you focus on the, how it's realize okay, you know, you have to hold your people accountable. How do you do that? You know that you want to create an environment where people can motivate themselves. How do you become someone's favorite boss, right? It's that Maya Angelou statement when she said, people won't remember what you did. People won't remember what you said, but people always remember how you made them feel. And it's like how do you become that to someone else how do you pay that forward and a lot of times they just need help opening the can of worms right path of least resistance is avoidance they look the other way they sweep it under the rug they hope it fixes itself then some proverbial straw breaks on the camel's back and kaboom then they come running to my office in hr and they're like we well, want the person fired it's like slow down slow down slow down You know, we can't just fire them. You've given them all perfect performance reviews. There's no progressive discipline. And you go through that wrangling. My way around that, what made most sense to me, Carl, was when I moved into a new company, I did management training. Lunch and learns, pizza's on me. But come on, you guys, let's talk about this because I want you to understand how I'm going to look at things and how I want to be there to support you. But I don't want to be the obstacle. I don't want to be the one where you come to HR and say, well, we could fire him because he's at will it's like no at will is something they use in the courtroom it's not a concept that we use in the workplace but you've got to teach them that on the front end and once they do that all of a sudden you become the teacher you're the ally you know you're the one who's got their backs so you take that model of what i've done in these various companies and you just put it in a book form and it's like this is everything you need to know as a manager or at least many of the things you need to know as a manager to to guide people, to make sure you don't step on a landmine that you didn't see coming, and to try and pay it forward and become someone's favorite boss. It's kind of fun, It's it's a beautiful space to be in. Leadership is like the greatest gift the workplace offers because it allows you to touch other people's lives and help them build their careers. So that's my message, it's that simple, but you've got to kind of raise that awareness and help train people so that they're not reinventing everything from scratch and learning solely by experience. That's a really painful way to do these things.
0: That's a great, that itself, right, is a great lesson of what you shared about. And I love when you talked about the concept of how it makes you feel. We know the data is really clear, right? If you don't already know this, the number one reason why, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the number one reason why people leave is because of their manager, right? Correct. Yep. And, And so if we're not great managers and great leaders, people leave regardless of how great the company is. So how do we, if people, once people come aware of that and they know that, how do you teach that feel? And as you know, there are people with so many different strengths and talents, but there is this common goal that they want to make sure that the people that are working with them, that they they feel trusted, they care about them, they're there for them, they're, they want to help them grow. What, what, what key strategies
1: can you do to help put that in so they're like, ah, now I get it? Great. So, so one of the thoughts I would say, which is interesting, Carl, is we've lost the ability as a society to sit around the campfire and pass the the wisdom from the elders down to the younger generations. We just don't do it anymore. We're too busy. We're looking at our phones, blah, 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 right? You have to kind of create that space. And if you can get into managers' heads and keep things simple and say, look, come on, you guys, I'm going to ask you a question that I just want you to think about that I would be asking you if I were your executive coach. Would you want to work for you? Mm. Think about it. And let's talk about that a little bit. And, you know, their eyes go up to the left and they're thinking, well, you know, Paul, I mean, yeah, but I'm busy. And they go into, you know, defense mode. They're making excuses. It's like, no, no, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with this. Listen, we're not perfect. But think about your favorite boss. Tell me about your favorite boss. Let's just use that as a prism. And someone in the class raises their hand and says, she always had my back. She always made me feel like I could do no wrong. She helped me build my self-confidence, right? Next student, next employee manager, whatever. Um, He challenged me to do things I didn't even think I I was ready for yet. He had more faith in me than I had in myself. The next one raises their hand. Well, you know, she really wanted me to focus on my professional development. She seemed to care more about where my career was going as much as she wanted me to stay in my role. She wanted me to get ahead, whether at our company or elsewhere. After the exercise, you stop and you say, okay, you guys, are you describing someone's beingness or someone's doing this? In other words, are you describing who they are or are you describing what they do? And they say, well, both. And I'm like, yeah, right, both, but go down deeper. Go down deeper. What are you ultimately telling me? And they say, I guess it's their beingness, isn't it? And that's the aha moment. It's like, yeah, you don't have to do anything. We spend our time hair on fire, chasing our tails, trying to do, do, do everything in our world. When the reality is to be a great leader, you just have to be a certain way. It's your character and it's your caring. It's the two C's, that's it. If people respect you for who you are, Because you care about that, that you care about them, that sense of selfless leadership, right? Putting others' needs ahead of your own, expecting them to respond in kind. If you care about them and your character is strong, speaks to the ethics component, you're done. That's it. They will give discretionary effort, they will take that bullet for you, they will follow you into fire, they will do it because you become their favorite boss but we've got to keep it simple. There's too many stories we tell ourselves. We get into our heads about, well, I'm a manager now, so therefore I have to be able to blah, blah, blah. It's like, really, would you want to work for you? Just keep it simple. And if the answer to that is sometimes, but not always, that's okay. Think about how do you make it? Yes, I want to become someone's favorite boss. I want to be to my people what so-and-so was to me. And, 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 and there's that idea of self-reflection, right? There's that idea of, of, of trying to re-identify yourself, but it's simpler than we make it. And I think that's an important message because we're all trying so hard to do so many things all at the same time. That doesn't make you someone's favorite boss. No one describes their boss by what they did. They describe their favorite boss by who that person was to them, what that person meant to them, how that person made them feel. And that's where the gift lies.
0: First of all, Dan, me was, and Dan, if you're listening, uh, thank you for teaching me this concept that you, Paul, you just talked about, which is there's a difference between the being side and the doing side, right? And you just described it, right? It's who you are. It's this character. I was like, well, how can I be that? It's like, you've got to be it, right? You got to consistently care. You got to consistently be compassionate and not just worry about the doing side, right? Because there's, a, I, I would say I'm naturally more attuned to doing, getting things done. Right, right. You know, but there is this people component that's so incredible. I've had the unfortunate, at the same time, pleasure to be at a few celebrations of life recently. Some some uh, important people in our life have just recently passed away. Fortunately, live a long
1: life, but no one talks about what they did at work. Like 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 very
0: none. I mean, there is no discussions of wow, this person created a great project management plan and that helped us get to a certain level. <laughs> Nobody cares if they, if somebody does talk about work, they talked about how they cared for me and how they, they were there for me and how they helped me grow and how they were present. These are these, this is what you're talking about. Like when you keep the end in mind of like, what do you, I mean, you could go as far as that. What do you want people to say at a funeral for you? Yeah. Yeah. Right. If, go ahead, Paul. You're about to say something. I'm
1: just t- tipping it, off of that. You're right. Carl. That's your narrative. I mean, what, what is that elevator pitch? Oh, yeah, Paul Falcone, when he was still on the planet, he was wonderful because, fill in the end of the sentence. I mean, this is where I say we've lost the ability to, 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 to pass wisdom down from the elders to the younger generation. You know, it's interesting, Carl, when we were my last job, I was a CHRO for the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is the movie business, but it's for the elders. It's a retirement home. It's for people who have been in, in the industry. And we had a visiting professor come in from USC, University of Southern California, and he was a sociologist. And he said, everyone, who's the loneliest generation on the planet? And we all raised our hands. And we said, the people who live here in the home. And he said, wrong, that's number two. Number one is Gen Z, 25 and under, okay? The Zoomers. The 25 and under crowd is the loneliest generational cohort on the planet because they've only lived through digital technology. And it's isolated them and their testing is anxious and depressed. And that's why you're seeing such a big push towards mental health and well-being in the workplace. Because we know the younger generation is having this challenge. Now you put on top of that remote work in this post-COVID world. And again, it isolates them further. So when I was a kid growing up through human resources, I would talk to people about soft skills and they say, soft skills, that's nice, Falcone. Go sit in your corner. We'll call you if we need you. Nowadays, they call it emotional intelligence. And in all of these CEO surveys, what CEOs are pulling in at is they're saying what they want most from their senior leaders is a high EQ, emotional quotient, a high level of emotional intelligence, someone who's who's able to bond with people, to build trust, to build rapport. Why? This ain't rocket science. The reality is, especially in a remote environment. You have to make sure you've got the retention, especially of your top players. And that's only going to come through having the right kinds of relationships with them. So in a remote environment, you've got to be more deliberate. You've got to be more purposeful. You've got to build these things into your calendar. It's not like you're going to walk down the hallway and see them at the coffee machine. But it still can be done. And it's something that we really got away from before COVID. And COVID has forced us to take another look at. And now we're finally realizing how critical these people bonding skills actually are.
0: So, one of my companies, I don't want to, I'm, I don't want to lead it, but I, I'll be able to say what one of the things we did afterwards. But if you described one of the most important things is the being side versus the doing side, right? At the end of the day, we could teach anybody to do anything theoretically, right? Uh-huh. Theoretically, and then, and then and the being side, though, it's once again who you are. So, how do you, without getting in trouble, interview to to pull out the being side in someone? so you can actually hire the right people for your organization?
1: Well, no, it's a good question. I, I always talk about the idea of managers tend to hire based on likability, right? They like someone. So right away, they're like, oh, I like this guy. Let's hire him. I'm like, you've only spent five minutes with him. Did you even have him sit down in your office? <laughs> you know, was, this is my reality as a recruiter, having done this for so long. The key that you're looking for is compatibility. Likeability is important, but that's at the end you have to know how to dice and slice a candidate and you have to know what to look for. And talking to them about these types of issues becomes really, really important. If they've never worked in a remote environment for it, just as an example, Carl, you could say, tell me what it is about a remote environment that you think would work for you. Okay, easy enough. Tell me what some of the challenges would be. Tell me how you would go about in your mind, A, keeping me abreast of what you're doing so I'm not flying blind and B, building relationships with your peers. And again, if they have experience, you could talk to them about that. What did you do to keep your boss in the loop? What kinds of you know, key performance indicator? What did you use? What kind of scorecards, customer satisfaction? How did you feed information up to your boss? And how were you there for your coworkers? And what did that mean to be there to help people who might've been sensing loneliness? I am looking for that emotional factor. That emotional intelligence piece is important to me and the people that I hire. And it all boils down to two things. Number one, selflessness. And number two, gratitude. That's what I'm looking for. When I see people that are coming from gratitude and thankfulness, they see a world a certain way. The opposite is not enoughness. And when people are coming, there's never enough time, never enough resources. The company never invested enough in the system. So blah, blah. What you can hear that. And you can, you can tease those, those answers out of people. But to the degree that I can, and again, I've never been in a situation where I have to hire a thousand people at a time. I realize those are, those are real and you can't do this in all those cases. But in the cases where you are looking for a real key partner in whatever you're doing on a smaller team or in a smaller organization, or even in a smaller team in a larger organization, which in HR is usually our experience, it's a smaller team, even if we're a Fortune 500 company, you're looking for that compatibility. And once you can kind of nail that down and feel confident, that they have a certain level of emotional maturity, then at that point you can, see, you can rely on likability who you like more, but make sure you're factoring those in and make sure you're asking the right questions about them.
0: I recently heard a story of somebody who was describing what they're in their hiring and they would make sure they took them out to a meal, either a, a, a lunch or a dinner. And it was through that experience they that could tell, just like what you said. Are they grateful for that experience, or are they complaining about that experience? Were they wanting more, or were they uh, they were just wanted to be present with you to learn more, right? And and that differentiation, and like in, in this one particular case, sure enough, the the person who had the quote unquote higher degree status and the higher proficiency, they declined because it wasn't going to fit in their organization because they didn't have the right being side to fit.
1: I knew you were going to say that. And that's actually fairly common. That's the thing that's so cool about it. You can do it in that scenario or any other. But I'll tell you what, I've been fortunate. I did not have a lot of turnover on my teams through the years. But the message I always wanted my teams to hear was, you guys, number one, I'm training you to replace me because I want to give you as much insight into what it's like at my vantage point so that you can do this and step into it at some point. And the second thing that I'm going to tell you all, besides the fact that I want you to replace me, is I want you to come from gratitude. And why I'm telling you that is, is, you'll look, the world is the world, and it's going to have some not so nice parts to it, but you can choose to experience it the way you choose to experience it. Um, I knew someone who was diagnosed with cancer, who said, it's the greatest gift I was ever given. And he said, when I found out that I was diagnosed with cancer, I looked at my wife and I said, my prayer was just answered. And the wife said, what are you talking about? And he said, when I used to work in healthcare, I saw what it was like to see pediatric oncology and little babies going through this. And I always thought if it, if that ever happened in my family, my only prayer would be take it away from them and give it to me. Mm. And when I got diagnosed, my prayer was answered because it wasn't the kids. It was me. And I knew I'd be fine going through it. It just changes everything, changes the way you see everything. So I always tell my people, this is what I tell my kids. I'm not grandfather time over here. (laughs) But but there's something about leadership wisdom, especially, again, with the Gen Z, the, the, the Zoomers, the 25 and under crowd. They need this like oxygen. They've pulled the millennials, Gen Y, and they've pulled the Gen Z Zoomers more than any other generational cohorts in world history. We know everything about them. And they keep coming back to a top five. And one of those top five is they want an ethical employer and a management team that cares about them personally. So one of my new books that came out last year was, you know, Workplace Ethics, you know, Mastering Ethical Leadership and Sustaining a Moral Workplace. Why? Because that's where the trends are going. So as an employer, yeah, you know, as a writer, I'm like, well, I want to get on this bandwagon on the front of it. But the point is, this is one of their big five. They also want career and professional development. They they want work-life family balance or control. They want uh, corporate social responsibility and environmentalism, and they want diversity of thoughts, ideas, and voices. Those are your big five. If you're a smart employer, listen to that. This is your future workforce and try and build that in. It could be a matter of just putting in those rubber buckets so that people can throw their used plastic bottles after they drink a soda, and they can put it in a recycling bin rather than the garbage but that's meeting the needs of where these generations are. So pay attention to that. It just more sense to me, but again, people aren't always looking at the 30,000 foot view and they kind of go back doing their day-to-day which is the whole point of your business is getting them to think more strategically. Strategically meeting employees where they are is not as hard as it sounds, you just have to listen. And then you can put in some simple solutions that maybe don't even cost you anything, but holy cow, what a difference it made. Because it was important to them,
0: right? Right. Yeah. No, you nailed it. And uh, as you as you were sharing and you were talking about the importance of passing along knowledge, uh, this this is why we do this podcast, right? Is we're hoping, right, to get experts on a consistent basis to provide this wisdom and knowledge, because it's hard to be in a campfire, so to speak, right, with everybody. But hopefully, right, people can take this one. Paul, you've been just crushing it today. I I love what you've been talking about. Now, you yourself have taking this entrepreneurial plunge, right? So you have worked with the big co for years and years and years, and you took the big leap to go off on your own. Tell us about that experience. Cause that's a lot of people think of doing that. And of course, right now, unfortunately, people are being forced into that. Yeah. Right, Because we've had, you know, more corporate layoffs probably since 2008, 2009, you know, it's been a long time. We've had like this big of ones that happened uh, this year. Tell us how that experience has gone for you and would you do it again?
1: I'm loving it. I, I, Carl, I'm not kidding. This is fabulous. But I wasn't ready for it earlier in my career. I, you know, to me, I was always paycheck and benefits. And that's the way I thought of things. And so in the last few years, I was thinking about, I want to launch my own consulting firm. It scared me to, I was like, yo, now you got to kind of eat what you kill. I don't know if I can do this. Who's going to want me? You know, it's that kind of thing. So it's natural to go through that. Um, It wasn't to a point of paralysis, but certainly it was to a point of caution. I'm part of the gray resignation. You've heard of the great resignation, the gray resignation, people like me with the gray hair, where it's like, I'm a baby boomer, but I'm the youngest of the baby boom. I was born in 63. The baby boom ended in 64 with the introduction of the birth control pill made it by that much. But the point is, um, a lot of people are leaving early. I mean, technically speaking, I've got another eight years before I'm, 67 and can, can draw on my full social security, blah, blah, blah. I'm not doing it in corporate. After doing COVID in a retirement home and seeing the residents die, seeing patients die, seeing employees die, it was really hard. It was ground zero. If you remember, COVID started in, in a retirement home in Seattle. So I was head of HR for a retirement home in Los Angeles, but it was the same thing. It was really, really hard. And I just thought to myself, you know what? Life is short. I want to touch more lives. That's really what it is. I mean, the whole idea of my writing has always been a form of teaching. I love to teach. Passing wisdom down is kind of what it's all about to me. You know, you got to make the world a better place. I was fortunate for me. I can do it, Carl, in the space of an article. I can do it in the space of a book. I could teach, I taught classes at UCLA Extension for years. That's kind of my happy zone. And that's, I just thought to myself, you know what? Where I'm fortunate was because of the books, because of the magazine writing, because of teaching, people kind of know me. So I said, you know, if I'm ever going to do this, I'm going to do this now. Um, so I had a, I, again, I'm a fairly conservative guy, but I just felt like now's the time you've got to take this plunge. And my wife was the one who said, you know, honey, you're 59. You don't want to start this when you're 67. Start it now, build a half a decade or so so that you have a client base. Cause I know you, you're going to want to work till you're 90. And she's right, but now's the time to build that practice. So it was a lot of wisdom uh, from my wife and decided to take the plunge and have not looked back. And I'm really, really enjoying working with different kinds of companies, different kinds of challenges. It's cool. I'm having a blast.
0: So for you, I'm going to ask you two measures possessed questions in terms of the the business side. Number one, how, when you were in traditional HR departments, if you may, you know, and leading those, how were you measuring success in that role?
1: Two answers. Number one, HR is moving more and more towards metrics and analytics and seeing where the people are going, right? And the things you normally think of, is, you know, are, is your turnover better? Are your internal promotion rate? How's that looking? How are you looking at your diversity statistics? So yeah, you definitely could put, you can overlay this idea of metrics and analytics onto the human capital portion of your organization. So that part of his one. The other part of it, though, to me was always more personal than that. What I love doing is training managers, right? So, you know, like when I would call them, I was a new guy in town. They didn't know who I was. But come on in, come on down, Paul's serving pizza. Having fun with this. It's one of the managers who would tell me, never had this kind of training before, never really had this kind of support from HR before. Wow. Now that I've got it, it's like, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't have this earlier in my career, but you're making a real big difference in my life. And that's what, that's what makes a difference. I, someone who was a coordinator on my team at Nickelodeon is now a senior VP of human resources. Um, you know what? Life doesn't get better than that. And when people can say, Paul, when you run into him in the mall, Carl, they're like, Paul, I haven't seen you in five years. How you been? I still think WWPD. What would Paul do? You influenced me so much. That's the psychic income. That's why we do the work. Yeah, we do it for pay and We do it for benefits. I get all that. But the reason we're really doing it is because we can touch people's lives. And, and, and the sooner I think you can embrace that idea of you being that gift, that pay it forward type of influence on other people, wow, it all opens up. And when you realize it's not as hard as you thought it was, just by focusing on the beingness versus the doingness and all this other kind of stuff, you start putting the piece pieces of the puzzle together. And it's like, this is a, this is not as hard as I've been making it. And I think what you're doing is you're helping companies really focusing on their strat planning. And you're looking at companies to say, hey, you know, uh, lost the CEO, you know, wait a second, let's get you to a point where you're focusing on the key things that are going to drive your business. And the people element is only one of them. Um, I like to focus strictly on the people. I'm not the financial element. I'm not the operational element. I'm the people element, but certainly a core part of what you're doing too. And it's helping crystallize what those ideas are. And I think make you and I able to give back in, in very unique ways, which is very cool. I
0: appreciate you saying that and, and bringing out the book there, Paul. And, you know, what it was interesting I, initially, I was going to do the traditional how book, right? Which is what 99% of books and which is great, right? Of like this how, but it was interesting. I found myself going back to I need people to, and people are not a, unaware of what strategies there are to do what they're unaware is, is making the emotional decision and how to get behind that. So they end up making the decision. And that's what the book is intentionally done, right? Is to put themselves in their shoes of why their business is stagnating or not growing at the pace that they thought and, and helping them understand, ah, there is a better way. Right. Because unless you get, you get that right. Unless there's an emotional connection, people don't move. It's just a fact. Right. And I'm a fact guy, but it's like, I used to say in the when I was in CFO roles, we're going to get all the emotional financial data together and then make an emotional decision. Uh-huh. Right. Because <laughs> right. we have to move forward. Because at the end of the day, it does come down to emotion and belief is what's going to have somebody have the confidence to take a risk where they've never gone before.
1: Yeah. And 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 I'll tell you what's fun. Reinventing what you're doing is a real cool feeling. And I think people have gotten away from it. In the sense where, listen, if we're fortunate enough to still be in business after COVID, it's been three years of treading water at best in your career or facing devastating loss at worst if you lost family members or coworkers through this dreadful disease that we've all been through. But for example, for me, later this afternoon after today's podcast, I'm talking with someone who wants to take my website to 2.0. Now, my I love my website. My daughter created it for me and she did a great job. She's in digital marketing. So it was my, my birthday present a couple of years ago, but it's time, you know, and there's new things that I want to do. And I want to create a blog. I've never done that before. And I want to add a new page with client testimonials because now I've got clients and i have been doing this for nine months. And you've got to kind of take that time to reinvent what you're doing. Okay, that's what innovation is all about, creativity. It's not like all of a sudden you go from zero to Tesla and there's a new car on the end of conveyor belt. But where the innovation comes from is a thousand little ideas along the way. If as a leader, as a business owner, you can create that space for people to feel more and more self-confidence in what they're doing and making it safe for them to volunteer their ideas where they don't feel like they're gonna get their head chopped off or made a fool of, right? Because their boss has their back and Paul would never do that to me. Paul's always open to new ideas. If you can kind of create that environment, you create that innovation, that creativity comes into play You've just got to make the space for it. It's the same thing I tell people as a manager, you're not responsible for motivating your employees. All motivation is self-motivation. I can't motivate you. You can't motivate me. But you are responsible for creating an environment in which people can motivate themselves. That makes all the difference. It's a subtle distinction. But when you think about it, it's like, huh. Yeah, I guess that's easier than I thought too. A lot of this is making things simpler because it's so, we live in a very complex world. It really is. It's it's tough out there these days. I want to be that calming force. And the, the, along the final thought here, I would say, ask your employees one simple question. Can you do your very best work every day? That's the question. Or can you do your, <clears throat> excuse me, your very best work every day with peace of mind? Mm. You'll be surprised what you hear. A lot of people will say, Well, no, to tell you the truth, since you're asking me, No, I can't because. And that's okay. But you're not going to know unless you ask. If you can create the space where people can say, Yeah, I can do my very best work every day with peace of mind, you will be surprised how they're hitting it 110, 120%. But if you create that sense of it's risky to put your neck out, it's risky to come out with ideas, you're going to get people doing the 80% routine. They're not going to do any more than they have to just out of principle. And that's defeating. So, how do you reinvent that? How do you have more fun with this? We all need more enlightenment. We need to lighten it up. That's kind of where I I think the new movement towards management is going. And if you're not great at it, it's okay. But understand something the newer generation is expecting it. And that's not a bad thing. When you look at the demographics, demographics is destiny. When you look at Baby boomers are going. By 2029, the last ones of them are done. The baby boom was followed by Gen X, otherwise known as the baby bust, which is only about half its size. It's not until you get to Gen Y, the millennials that you got, wow, 80 million new, you know, new bodies out there. This is your future. And the Gen Z, which is a little smaller, about 67 million, as I recall. But, but the point is, when we saw the baby boom at 77 million, we thought there could never be a generation this big. And now with 80 million, millennials are bigger. That is the future of your workforce. And if you want to keep your doors open, don't be one of those owners. that says, oh, these kids, they want the corner office by the time they're 30. I'm not going to deal with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to deal with them. This is the future of your workforce. Let's just be smart about how we do that.
0: Great wisdom. I want to catch on two more questions here before we we, uh, tail off here, Paul. One is, I was curious when in our prep conversation, you talked about your habits of writing a book and and, and there's so many different approaches and it scares people from taking the path. And here you are once again, working on 15th plus, right? Books, 16, 17 and and, and more that you are be contracted to do in the future. You have a habit of doing things a little bit differently, I think than most people would. Can you describe what you talked about of how you write your books?
1: Yeah, my book wakes me up in the middle of the night, Carl, and says, write me. Um, don't ask. I don't know why, but a lot of times when the creativity hits, I mean, I couldn't sit down and write in the middle of the day if my life depended on it, but at one o'clock in the morning, don't ask why, boom, it comes into my head. And when I'm in that book writing mode, which usually takes about six months for a manuscript, um, yeah, it's not uncommon that I'm up from either 10 to one or one to three, but I could do so much work. It's almost like a you know, the racehorse versus the plow horse, right? The racehorse works in sprints. They can't go on forever and ever and ever. But in those short sprints, they can get a lot of work done. That's how my writing comes to me. So I don't know why it's that way. I just have learned to recognize the beast and I stay with it and I honor it. And it drives my wife crazy at times because it's like, oh, he's gone again. But but when I got to go downstairs, I've got to write. It just wakes me up. So whatever yours is, Um, just go with it. And don't be afraid to put something on paper. When people talk about writer's block and all of a sudden I get that, it's like, just start writing, don't, it's not perfect. You're gonna have to kiss a few princes before you find or kiss a few frogs before you find your prince. Just get right in there, expect to be with the frogs. The prince will come out eventually, some of us quicker than than, than than others, but the reality is you just got to get in there and do the work and, and have some fun with it. And if you enjoy it and it's a creative outlet, like it has been for me, it could be quite a hobby and it, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, so um, now you once again, you have your books. I encourage people once again to go out, Paul, and to see all the different books that you, you've written. Um, what is a book that's not yours that inspired you that you'd like to share with others?
1: Oh, that's an easy one. You know which one I always recommend? Uh, it's called The Next 100 Years. Um, it's by George Friedman. Uh, came out, I think in 2009, Carl, um, but it was New York Times bestseller list for a long time. And the funny thing is, remember when I talked about earlier, demographics is destiny. The idea of talent acquisition is always important, but talent development is really gonna be where our future is because we're gonna have to grow our own. I like taking my employees to that 30,000 foot view. I like them seeing where things are going because we do all our work in the weeds and that's where it's supposed to be. But if you're only in the weeds all the time and you don't see the broader picture of where things are going, the context is missing. You, the perspective is lacking. So that's a great book. to re- It takes you decade by decade by decade through, you know, what's going to be changing in the United States, what's going to be changing globally, where the new future is lying and and where these resources are going to be. Hint, it's Africa, Um, where, you know, when it comes to precious metals, but also human capital, Africa is going to be what's developed. China already has a 30-year infrastructure plan. Just last week, our vice president, Kamala Harris, went went to China, but we're a little late in the game, but we were trying to get in there there's so much of that big picture stuff that's happening. A book like that gives you great perspective. So again, it's called The Next Hundred Years by George Friedman.
0: Perfect. Great recommendation. Paul, how can people connect and learn more about you?
1: Oh, that's nice. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, just Paul Falcone One. And my website is paulfalconehr.com. So that's probably. It's about as intuitive as I can (laughs) can make it. So, anyone who wants a link, you know, LinkedIn or website or anything on those lines, I'd be more than welcome to to hear from them. Perfect. Paul, it's been an
0: absolute pleasure to have you today. Thank you for being a guest on the Measure Size Podcast.
1: My pleasure. I had a ton of fun. This is great, Carl. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. And to everyone who's listening, I hope you enjoyed Paul and I encourage you to write reviews for us. That's how we continue to grow and be one of the top global podcasters out there. And as I always always like to say, wishing you
1: the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye.